Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Welcome back. Today we're going to be talking about the disruption of stability. Tiny Mike is back. I just basically want to talk about everything. You know, micro, macro, crypto, housing-o, Elon Musk-o, the finance universe. I'm going to talk about him today. And it's mostly going to be a conversation around this image. So micro, the individual housing and current standardization, how that relates to crypto, then macro, so dollar dominance, Federal Reserve, supply chains, globalization. All of this ties into China somehow, of course. And then, of course, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, Elon Musk. I'm going to talk about all that and more today. But first, I wanted to start with the disruption of the grind set. So if you're like me and you're on Twitter.com and you are remotely associated somehow with the tech field, there's a lot of tech bros that are optimizing every part of their life, whether that be the foods that they eat, who they make time for, everything is kind of about them being the best possible versions of themselves. And there was a tweet thread that said 20 books to read in your 20s as someone in their 20s. I recommend some of these books, but I don't think that you should spend your 20s just reading self-help novels. And a lot of people agreed with me. The replies were essentially like, this is kind of gross. This hyper-individualistic entrepreneurial force that is like the epitome of like, I'm nothing if I'm not my work is kind of like nasty. The inherent assertion behind all of this was that self-help books are the cookie cutter template of what success is meant to look like. The books don't really leave room for nuance. They drag out assumptions and they kind of copy paste these broad generalizations and they're like, this will work work for you because it works for me. And a lot of people don't like that. And as Colin Wilson wrote in A Criminal History of Mankind, the worst crimes are not committed by evil degenerates, but by decent and intelligent people taking pragmatic decisions. And I think it's almost ironic and paradoxical that our housing structures are increasingly becoming non-individual, which sort of disrupts this whole individuation process. And I promise I have a point for people who are like, what is she saying? But there was a really good YouTube video titled Why Everywhere in the US is Starting to Look the Same that talked about this, the franchisation of the United States, how we seek stability in strip malls, and how we encourage societal sameness. It's much easier to build apartment buildings that all look the same versus individual houses, and that's much more profitable too. And that shows up in the advent of build for rent versus build for sale. So if you've done anything with housing recently, you've probably read about build for rent. This like whole concept of optimizing housing, making housing that's cheap and all looks the same, ends up with these five over ones, which are five-story wood frame buildings on a concrete platform that are pretty cheap to build. They're more profitable than building houses says they all look the same, right? Like they're cookie cutter templates of each other. And the thing is like, we just don't have enough housing. We, we, we just don't. There's people who will argue against that. And it's kind of like, look around buddies. We have housing maybe in some areas, the middle of the country where people are like, maybe I won't live there, but in places where people want to live or are trying to live, there's just not enough housing. And California, hello, you're a prime example. We end up packaging everybody into these same apartment structures. Housing is scarce. Mortgage rates are above 5% for the first time in 11 years. But demand is not stopping and shortages aren't resolving. So that's going to continue to get worse and worse, especially as the Fed continues to tighten. And it's kind of funny, almost like ironic funny, because we have this rebellion of sameness where it's like, I'm not going to read the self-help novels that are telling me to be the same person as everybody else, juxtaposed with these housing structures that are increasingly homogenous. And I think there's this fear of sameness, and I experience it in myself, where there's so much opposition to the grind set mindset because of that immense fear of losing your self-identity, of losing who you're meant to be, 
of yourself like sort of fading away becoming a dust moat floating around and you're like who's that I don't know who I am anymore and you get that passion crisis you get that personality crisis and I think a lot of people you know how, how would you say an existential crisis for a little bit of spice on top and people react so viscerally to being told that like okay just read these self-help novels that are going to tell you the top 20 ways to become rich and it's like dude no like whoa I need I need more like I need some element of fulfillment and I talked about this a little bit last week but like that's just not something that society sort of is like here you go like that's it's go explore it's like no you you better get a job and you better freaking figure that stuff out dude because if you don't like good luck and there is a lot of trouble with that like we really want to remain ourselves but it's really difficult to find who we are and I think that a lot of people when they talk about like this four-hour work week Tim Ferriss is great build your own path with a shovel and a brick and it looks just like your neighbor's path that mindset that shows up in these self-help books like people are essentially adapting their personhood to what they think society defines as success because this the sameness is seen as a quick way to access an opportunity like just do these things and you'll be rich too but the boxing of ourselves the forcing function of becoming the reflection that you see in the mirror is actually like super important right like you got to kind of know who you are to to work on yourself and i think because we become there's my point because we become these build to rent homes aha haha <laughs> did you like that connection where i was talking about five over ones and then i was like everybody's becoming a five over one but like essentially we're all built from different foundations but we kind of end up acting the same and i think that people are beginning to rebel against that at least on the micro level and on the macro level we're sort of on the similar cusp of things changing that was the more individual level which you know maybe i was reaching but this is more macro and this is more a concrete platform with with structure on top this is a disruption of stability zoltan has been calling for big change and Sultan's thesis like boiled down to the most simplest of forms the US dollar is not cool anymore people are like gross you sanctioned Russia I'm not trying to get with the USD because you can just take it away at any time and that's scary and I don't like it and so as a consequence the Federal Reserve is going to have a harder time achieving price stability which is like the main reason that they exist that makes the US dollar super not cool because you have state intervention so governments being like hey actually money is not super real and we can freeze it whenever we want and countries are gonna be like whoa U.S. that's super not cool and we're definitely not going to vibe with you after that. And then there's that crisis of credibility because there's inherent assumption in the U.S. dollar of price stability but also rule of law. And so a lot of people have pointed to the weaponization of the dollar disrupting both of those. The rule of law like things will be upheld, like things will continue, money is money. And then price stability like we will make sure that money is money. And both of those things were disrupted by the sanctions on Russia, people say. I think if you invade your neighbor, like <laughs> that's your problem but it's a good point like what is money if it can just be taken and Zoltan's whole thing is that China will be a main benefactor from that and the U.S. will not so people are going to rotate away and that's interesting as from the sameness perspective right so everything remaining the same because even as, as I talk about this I'm like uh no the U.S. dollar is going to remain reserve currency forever and ever and you're silly if you think that's not going to be a thing and but then it's also like maybe maybe not and you know when when people point to china being autocratic as a reason that they would not be the reserve currency like zoltan thinks that they are well zoltan would be like well um actually china is an ex-anti closed capital account but the u.s is an ex-post closed capital account so like that's basically the same thing you're making an argument that is silly because the two countries are doing the same thing just in different orders because of what happened with the sanctions on russia and so zoltan luke Grumman, a bunch of other guys who were like right about things sometimes they were basically like 
like the Russian sanctions are the equivalent of the US going off the gold standard. Like this is where money is in a freaking crisis, dudes. And the reckoning of Bretton Woods 3, the regime shift, trade alliances, money alliances are all shifting. And like maybe, I've talked about this last week where the IMF wrote this really good paper where it wasn't China taking on reserve currency status, but other countries were like, okay, we're gonna shift away from the USD. We're gonna have a bunch of little currencies and that's how we're going to run our reserves. It's not gonna be as focused on the US dollar. And I think that broadly makes sense because I don't think everything should be focused around China, but I do think that we are seeing this fracturing of the geopolitical system of affairs, which you would see in countries and how they divvy up their reserves. That's that disruption of sameness. So no longer is it going to be like, hey, United States, you're kind of cool. I'm gonna peg my currency to you. You're gonna start to see countries refocus their reserves, refocus their geopolitical partners with a focus on restocking, reshoring, rearming, and rewiring. And all of that underscores that concept of domestic protectionism. And of course, like, all of this comes with a giant caveat of maybe not because nature is a giant forcing function for commodities. So like, sure, you can try and diversify your reserves into commodities, but not everybody can produce oil like Saudi Arabia. Not everybody can produce wheat like India. And as Dan wrote, underlying value of commodities is the value of claims on industrial production. So there's structural components of the global supply chain that take time. Like the sure the US can frack for oil, but like that's kind of a running well that's drying up. And sure, we can build semi conduct their factories, but that all takes time. And so there are elements of sameness that kind of have to remain across this whole narrative because structurally the industrial process of sameness, it requires that, right? The whole interesting thing about Zoltan's broad narrative is that things need big change to be fixed. Zoltan's whole thing is like, things need big change to be fixed. And you see that with Bill Dudley being like, actually the Federal Reserve needs to completely wreck the stock market. And when the Fed was asked about that viewpoint, like, hey, Fed, are you going to completely wreck the stock market? The Fed was like, no. And so I think there's this narrative that pops up where things do need to like get whacked out of place in order to be fixed, but the Federal Reserve is not going to move like that. The Federal Reserve is going to move slowly. Uh, they're moving faster than they were, but they're going to move slowly. They're going to do 50 basis points a few times and then shrink the balance sheet, let things roll off. But they're a big boy in the market. The Federal Reserve is a big boy and it's really challenging to disrupt the status quo of that, right? Of easy money. Like they're 24% of the treasury market, 30% of the mortgage bond market. And so they have to ease out of all that and roll $95 billion off the balance sheet. And like, they're going to do all that. But it's like, can the market handle it? Like, is everything going to be okay? And there's a really good post from Liberty Street Economics about the mechanics of all this, the funding mechanics. And it's like, what the Fed does really matters <laughs> from a funding perspective. Like, we can be like, disrupt the Fed, get rid of them. But all this stuff is super intertwined. And it's not as easy just like as booting people out of the system, right? And hopefully all that works. Like, hopefully the Fed maintains credibility. Hopefully they don't cause the labor market to swing around. Janet Yellen actually expressed a little bit of uncertainty about that at her speech. Yes, two days ago. I don't remember. But I mean, it's just crazy. And hopefully inflation calms down. But hopefully it's a big word. And this gets into crypto. So I know that there's crypto skeptics out there. Hello. <laughs> I receive your messages. But just like countries are rotating away from US dollars for their reserves, I do think that you see people, so citizens, rotating away from USD and into crypto for essentially the same reason. They're diversifying their own reserves. And that's sort of this element of fragmentation and that fits into the Zoltan thesis because he expects crypto to benefit from all of this commotion if it still exists. Like he's, he's maybe not super bullish, but he's like, yeah, if crypto still exists, it should benefit from this. And I think that crypto kind of has this role in this like 
sameness and stability narrative where crypto erupted because it's this economic freedom it's the fight the man stuff and it's also like a level of monetized self-expression that somehow allows you to find who you are and diversify your reserves like you're actually incentivized financially to sort of like figure your stuff out and you that's not historically how it works and there's that in-group calibration where yes people are super cultish around like what cryptos they vibe with solana ethereum bitcoin whatever and i think that's a little bit concerning i've never understood largely speaking though crypto is giving people on ramps into self-discovery there's a financial incentive to this like you can't really figure out who you are by buying certain stocks like sure you could buy apple you could buy lululemon you could do it all but that doesn't really like help you figure out your personhood. And crypto, you can sort of design what you want your UI UX of the world to look like. And right now you can, you know, crypto exchanges are becoming super consolidated and that's a little bit concerning, but you can express yourself with different NFTs, different wallets, uh, different processes. And there's that element of self-expression and diversification of wealth. And there was a really good article in The Atlantic titled Americans are living in an alternate history. Megan Garber writes, to be an American in this moment is often to be beset with a sense of ambient fragility, not just because life itself is fragile, but also because the systems we navigate keep us in a state of constant precarity. I was talking about a little bit earlier, like if you make one mistake, it's kind of like, ooh, right? Like there's so much worry about that kind of stuff. Like if you have a medical expense, if all of a sudden you can't afford your rent, there isn't that social safety net. In the US, you, you're you sort of incentivized to lean into that aforementioned hustle, grind set mindset because if you don't, good luck on the other side, buddy. And all that is sort of boiling up into like, you're not a secure person. And that's scary. And things are getting worse. Like the rich are getting richer. This is no secret. I talked about it before. There's a great paper on this that addressed this broad problem of wealth inequality and pointed out that the top 10 savings comes from corporate savings, right? So equity ownership. And crypto is like kind of there to be like, hey, what if you owned me? Ownership accrues wealth over time. That's why people are diversifying into real estate because of fears of inflation. And Bankless wrote a really good piece on this and they wrote, the tolls that intermediaries take limits how far this value is able to permeate through society. Every intermediary adds friction to this outbound value flow and prevents it from reaching the margins. Because of this paradigm, the world is one of inwardly concentrating wealth. And of course, all these problems are not just unique to the US. Google searches for payday loan in the UK have searched since the start of March and now stand at the highest since late 2020. The whole world is like hanging in this imbalance, right? And that's underscored by Zoltan's work. That's underscored by global food costs rising 50%. That's underscored by the instability in Egypt and other nations who rely on Ukraine and Russia for wheat exports. And it's not a, just a not enough food problem, right? Like it's a, the whole supply chain. It's the logistical commodities aspect of this all too. And almost like painfully, paradoxically, we have a bullet effect happening in the supply chains right now where supply chains are recovering, where companies were ordering inventory and they have now too much inventory and then not enough demand. And previously it was the opposite, right? Like too many people, not enough things. Now it's too many things, not enough people. It's just funny how we are in the tales of the extreme. It feels like almost every second recently. That gets into China, right? So China, it's really scary to watch what's going on and to hear anecdotes of what's happening with their lockdown and like not enough food, not feeling safe and being stuck inside and having drones be like fight against your inner self that's telling you to go outside. Like that stuff's dystopian. And I think that it's really scary. You see people beginning to shift away from China as a 
supplier, like in the United States, a 29% decline in suppliers from Asia, uptick in suppliers from Mexico. And all of this underscores, I think, no offense, Sultan, that China's not ready to be a reserve currency. Like uh, the COVID zero property companies keep on going bankrupt over there. And also like they keep on cracking down on tech companies. And also as Mar Marco Polo Econ, which is a great name for a newsletter, wrote, they've invested too much in the wrong things and in the wrong places, construction and low growth regions. Yikes, right? And so like, how are you gonna be reserve currency if you're doing all that? China's in a tough spot economically, which is compounded by COVID. Ukrainians are still fighting for their lives and people in developing and developed nations are facing food insecurity and Europe simply can't stop buying Russian gas. So things are messy, right? And, and Janet Yellen came out to spoke to the Atlantic Council and she came out swinging at globalization. And so she said, let's build on and deepen economic and and the efficiencies it brings on terms that work better for American workers. And let's do it with the countries we know we can count on. Favoring the French whoring of supply chains to a large number of trusted countries so we can continue to securely extend market access will lower the risks to our economy as well as to our trusted partners. Essentially, all of this was a thinly veiled threat to China as political highlights, Yellen basically said that we're only going to work with people that we trust, and it's sort of a recognition that globalization is a bit iffy right now. She told countries that were sitting on the fence about the Russia-Ukraine war to, you know, get it together or else you're not going to be working with the US anymore. And she also said that the Fed would need skill and good luck to end inflation without thunderstorming the entire economy. So we got a lot going on there. And then we have inflation here in the United States. It came in higher than expected, 8.5%, but because it didn't come in that high, it's actually okay. Food is super expensive gasoline is crazy expensive. SPR releases might help, but they might not. And also they're going to start using E15, but that might cause a corn crisis and it's super bad for the environment. So man, oh man. Then the PPI, which is the producer price index for companies, came in at over 11%. Companies are like dealing with major, major heat right now. And that's going to get passed off to consumers. You're already seeing Amazon charging sellers, which is silly. A 5% fuel and inflation surcharge, but used cars prices did fall by almost 4%. That's good. And now I get to talk about Elon Musk. So how, how could I not? Oh man, this guy. Um, so I actually have written about him before, Elon Musk Premium. So if you want to go check out that piece, it's an earlier one. However you feel about him, guy is game, right? Like I can't, can't fault it, but I, you know, this is sort of like the metagame where a guy gets bored and then he's like, let me try and buy a social media company, which is kind of ridiculous. But you know, it's, it's sort of funny to me. Like all you can really do is chuckle because oh, inflation, food shortages, a war. And it's like, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Dang, man, incredible. April 4th, Elon announced that he had purchased 9.2% of Twitter, making him the largest shareholder. He was then appointed to the board of directors where everyone was like, can't buy more Twitter, try to take it over. And he was like, peace out, I'm going to do that. Uh, and then April 10th, the Twitter CEO was basically like, Elon won't be joining the board. And now Elon can buy more and tweet bad things about Twitter, which he wouldn't have been able to do if he was on the board, tweeting out edit button ideas, ruminating on Twitter's death, declaring that it should be called Twitter without the W, which is just super awesome and proclaiming the downfall of free speech on the platform. So on April 14th, he tweeted that he would be making an offer to buy 100% of Twitter at $54 a share in cash, the $43 billion valuation versus his $260 billion net worth. And so if Twitter says no, he was essentially like, I'm going to believe and tweet mean things about you. And if Twitter says yes, he's going to unlock Twitter's extraordinary potential as a platform for free speech around the globe. Now Twitter, Twitter met and they're meeting again. I don't know, they're still talking about it. You know, they're still like trying to figure it out. How 
how is he going to finance it? Nobody really knows. He could sell some Tesla. He would have to sell 20% of his Tesla shares, which would be really bad. He could take out a big loan against Tesla and SpaceX, which would also be like crazy. Or he could go to Mark Andreessen and they could figure it out. I don't know. Twitter is a little company. Like it's not a big dog, but you know, they have investors, the kingdom holding company of Saudi Arabia, who's not vibing with this. And essentially the thesis is that Elon did not offer enough to take over Twitter and he doesn't know how he's going to finance it. He literally said that in an interview. He went to a conference and talked about this yesterday and he was like, yeah, I don't know, somehow. And he got Justin Sun being like, I'm going to buy Twitter. And then Warren Buffett was like, yeah, dude, like go Elon. This is cool. This is America. I don't know. Some final thoughts. Things are changing. BlackRock invested in Circle, which is the company that issues USDC, the second largest crypto stablecoin. And now Circle is potentially going to apply to become a bank. So there is your CBDC, everybody. The game is over. BlackRock has invested. So TradFly is slowly entering the world of crypto. There's like still a lot of resistance to it, which just like, look at your fellow brethren, you know, they're doing it, but whatever. But I think to this point of stability, things have been weird. There's always this underlying thread of sameness where it's like you know, the Fed's going to swoop in and save things and like things will be fine and normal and good. Change is inevitable. If there's one thing I've learned spending the first years of my adulthood in a pandemic <laughs> is that change is inevitable and there's a lot of stuff that you can't control. There's a really good paper titled How Likely is an Inflation Disaster? Essentially like a storm is brewing. We all kind of know that. The world is changing, even on a micro level. Jim Bianco highlighted the entire economy is built out around 160 million people going to an office five days a week. This is changing and it probably is. The foundation of the economy changes. So we just, as countries are going to be restocking, reshoring, rearming, rewiring, as Zoltan wrote, we the people will likely be relearning, rebuilding, reevaluating, and reframing. Our apartments are becoming identical uh, and I think a lot of people are going to be trying to define themselves as an individual in this uncertainty of the future. As Albert, one of my favorites. But in order to speak about all and to all, one has to speak of what all know and of the reality common to us all. The seas, rains, necessity, desire, the struggle against death, these are things that unite us all. We resemble one another in what we see together and what we suffer together. Dreams change from individual, but the reality of the world is common to us all. So the disruption of stability, I hope that you enjoyed it and I hope that you're doing okay. If you want to go ahead and hit subscribe, that really, really helps. Share it with a friend, be like, hey, are you feeling weird? Watch this. I don't know. Um, I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, kyla.substack.com. Yeah, I hope that you're doing good and hanging in there and I hope that you have uh, a jolly day. Bye.